What It Takes is brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, BakerBots. Founders and leaders of clean energy companies around the world turn to BakerBots for legal advice at every stage of their journey, from incorporation to exit. And when they want to build a complex project, they turn to people like Mike Didrikson. I I like it when we're doing something that's never been done before and nobody's figured out how to do it yet. (laughs) We've been fortunate to be involved in a number of transactions where people have come to us and say, hey, we kind of want to do something like this. Can you help us think through that? It's not cookie cutter work. Later in the episode, we'll hear about Mike's philosophy behind supporting some of climate tech's hardest projects. BakerBots knows energy, they know technology, and they know the needs of entrepreneurs pushing the boundaries of both. To scale your clean energy business faster, reach out to lawyers like Mike. Visit BakerBots.com. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate-positive future a reality. Heavy industries like manufacturing, food processing, mining, and construction require a staggering amount of energy, often in the form of heat. Iron, steel, and cement manufacturing require heat that reaches thousands of degrees Celsius. But until recently, there hasn't been a good way to generate that amount of heat using electricity. As a result, we've needed to burn fossil fuels to make these essential materials and products. And about a quarter of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. comes from these industrial processes. Learning how to generate these high temperatures without needing to burn fossil fuels is a really difficult problem, but it's a necessary step in cleaning up some of the hardest to decarbonize sectors of our economy. That's the challenge that Antora Energy CEO and co-founder Andrew Ponick is tackling. Yeah, so Antora develops thermal energy storage systems that turn variable renewables like solar and wind into reliable heat and power for industry. Antora's thermal energy storage solution takes the electricity generated from renewables and stores it in the form of heat at a cost and efficiency comparable to traditional battery technology. And what does that look like if somebody was looking at an Antora system? What would they see? They would see a big steel box, hopefully with a beautiful Antora logo on the side. (laughs) And what's in the box? What's in the box is uh, carbon. So our thermal energy storage system is built around solid carbon blocks, uh, graphite, so same sort of thing you have in your pencil lead. And those carbon blocks are going to be held at very high temperature, storing a lot of energy in the, the sensible heat of that material. Antora runs electricity from wind and solar through carbon blocks that heat up, reaching up to 2,000 degrees Celsius. That high temperature makes it the perfect heat source for industrial processes with far lower emissions. And if we're going to take all of that heat and electricity and make it with renewable sources rather than fossil fuels, we need a way to get rid of the variability of wind and solar so that they can provide the reliable energy that an industrial site needs. And there's a bonus. Super hot carbon at that temperature gives off both heat and light. That radiating light can be captured by Antora's modified photovoltaic cells and converted back into electricity. Industrial heat and power has proven exceptionally difficult to decarbonize. But as Andrew knows, the need to get these emissions under control only gets more urgent as time goes on. It would be one thing to try and build this company over a couple of decades and do slow growth, but that's just not what's needed to solve the problem we're trying to solve. I sat down with Andrew to talk about what it takes to roll out an entirely new kind of thermal energy storage technology. We talked about the lessons that Andrew learned from his first climate tech startup, which was acquired by SunPower, and discussed the role Antora's technology will play in cleaning up heavy industry. We started with Andrew's childhood in Salem, Oregon. Going way back to how the story all started, it started in Salem, Oregon, where you grew up with your mom and your dad and your older brother. Your dad, I know, was a physician and your mom was a biologist before becoming a full-time parent. What was your childhood like? I had an absolutely wonderful childhood. I'm so grateful to my parents for creating a, a really safe, loving environment for me and my brother. You know, I had, I would say, a a pretty normal childhood uh, other than just having, you know, as much support as uh, a kid could possibly want. And I really think that, you know, my own story comes from the support that I was given when I was young, not from a particular challenge that I faced when I was young. It, It really was from all of those positive experiences that I had. 
Hmm. And what were you like as a kid? What were you into? How did you spend your time? Yeah, I was all over the place as a kid. I am very curious. And so I loved lots of different things. So I really enjoyed playing the cello. So I did a lot of music when I was younger. I did a lot of gardening, still something that I, I really love to do. You know, I always loved math and science. I didn't really have a concept for what engineering was at the time, but uh, I would say now I, I loved thinking about uh, engineering type problems. Yeah, it, it was really a, a mix, a very healthy mix for me of, of a lot of different areas that I was, I was able to dive into with uh, a lot of wonderful people. Hmm. And did you have a sense of what you wanted to do after high school when you were in middle school or high school? I didn't have a sense of what exactly my role would be. You know, was I going to be a scientist? Was I going to be an engineer again, which I didn't really have a concept of what that was? Was I going to be doing, you know, something else? But I did know I wanted to work on energy and climate. That was a problem that I'd already been really drawn to uh, starting in, in, in middle school. And I just felt so strongly at the time and still do that climate change is the problem for our generation. And I knew I wanted to be a part of that solution. So in 2011, you took that passion for science and for climate with you to Stanford, where you studied energy systems engineering, and you told me that you loved it. But just two years into the four-year program, you left Stanford, or some might even say you dropped out. Why did you do that? <laughs> How did your parents feel about that? Yeah, you know, it, I I did. I had a wonderful first couple years and dropping out was not because I didn't feel like I had all sorts of opportunities and interesting things to do at, at Stanford. It was entirely because this project I was working on that became uh, my first company, Dragonfly Systems, it was so exciting to think about making a real practical positive impact out in the world. And, and that's really what drove me. Just about my parents, definitely that was not their favorite thing uh, for me to do. So it was a pretty tough time uh, in terms of them really wanting me to to stay at Stanford and me really wanting to go out and do this. So the compromise, which still didn't go over great, was for me to promise that I would come back to Stanford eventually to finish uh, my undergrad. Got it. What was it like when you told them that you were going to leave to start Dragonfly Systems? <laughs> well, my, my mom uh, burst into tears, and <laughs> oh. that was really tough for me. Uh, I'm very close with, with my parents, and my dad was just really worried uh, about, mm. you know, what, what my future was going to look like without something like Stanford. I think they had, you know, like a, a lot of parents, you know, imagined a more conventional path where I would go to college, you know, come out, probably do more schooling like they had done, you know, post-college, and, and not this very different path that they had no... Uh, concept of. And so, you know, there's a lot of fear for them and for me, but but especially for them about what that might look like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how did you decide to to leave Stanford and to start this first company, Dragonfly Systems? Yeah, it, it, in some ways it almost didn't feel like a decision. It was just so clear that I had to go and try this thing that I didn't really consider not doing it. And I, you know, I've, I've had people ask me similar questions. I've had, you know, current students ask me like, hey, like, should I stay in school or, or, you know, go do this other thing? And I pretty much always say, if you're having to ask that question, you should probably just stay in school. Like if you're not just so compelled that you say, I must do it, maybe it can wait. Yeah, it's good advice. Um, yeah. What was, what was the tech? How did you first come up with the idea? How did you decide to, to partner up with your co-founder? Tell me about that. The project really started in a introductory seminar class so uh, that myself and a bunch of other freshmen were taking, taught by Bill Daly, who was a professor at Stanford at the time and is currently uh, chief scientist at NVIDIA. And he was an amazing uh, professor, and we had a great time in the class. But it was also, it was a final project for that class that ended up becoming the technology for, for Dragonfly Systems, or at least what we thought the technology for Dragonfly Systems was going to be. And... Uh, you know, beyond that class, really, you know, and this was one of the, the moments in my life where somebody did something so generous that just transformed my journey, which was that that uh, Bill Daly took the time to really mentor one-on-one -on -one or one-on-a-few myself and, and these other students and basically just taught us engineering. Like, I really feel like myself as an engineer comes back to those, we would, we'd have breakfast together and, and then he would just like go through the, the, the work with us. And the most important thing that I really think I learned from him 
was about how to simplify problems to their essence and ignore all of the noise. And it was a very frustrating experience sometimes because we'd come and we'd be like, well, we don't understand this. We don't understand that. And he, he would just have this amazing way of just like cutting through all of it and just saying, none of that matters. None of that matters. We like, but we don't understand. It's like, but it, it doesn't matter, you know? No. So just really driving right to the heart of the issue every time. And that's something that, that I'd like to think I, I really uh, took away from those conversations. And at what point in those conversations did the idea for Dragonfly come up? It sounds like it was the the culmination of the class was to come up with some kind of business idea or technology. How did that idea turn into the company? We were always hoping to work on something as part of that project that would have commercial application. It was really only, you know, nine months later or something like that, that we decided, wow, we've actually made enough progress on this and the idea now seems good enough, you know, and it had gone through various iterations during that time, uh, but the idea seems good enough that maybe we could actually go and commercialize this and and not just have it be a, a fun side project. You know, as it turned out, we were totally wrong about that technology, but, but that was how we were feeling at the time that, hey, we've now made enough progress that this could be useful to someone. Mm. And what was the initial tech? And then where did the initial capital come from for you to feel like you could start this with Ben Johnson, who became your co-founder? Yeah. So so the initial tech was to make a maximum PowerPoint tracker for individual solar panels. So if you string a bunch of solar panels together, their performance is to some extent limited by whatever is the worst of the panels in that string. So if one panel is shaded or has some manufacturing defect or some bird poop on it or something like that, it can drag down more than just itself, but but some of the other modules as well. And so, you know, this was the problem that we were going after and the device that we would put on every module would sort of break that chain. So if one panel was underperforming, that would be the only one that underperformed and our device would allow all the rest of them to sort of work at their potential. You know, so this was something that was actually a lot of people were working on at the time. It was a it was a popular problem. You know, there were microinverters, there were other DC to DC optimizers in the market and so we were creating, you know, what we what we thought was a better version of those. And you know the kind of first break that that we had as a as a company, but while we were still students, was getting a third place in a business plan competition, <laughs> uh, where we won twenty thousand dollars, which to us seemed like an outrageous amount of money. <laughs> um, and uh, and the the first thing we did with that money was promise the entire twenty thousand dollars to the TA from that class, Ben Johnson, uh, who is an incredible engineer. And just say, hey, would you would you work with us this summer? And I remember being really nervous going into that conversation. I said, oh, he's probably got something else he's doing anyway. But he was just like, you know, I don't have something figured out for the summer yet. I'm like, sure, I'll I'll do it. I'll take the twenty thousand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay. And so that became the Dragonfly Systems team. And then my understanding is you pretty early on realized that the market for this product, for this tech that you developed, wasn't as big as you thought it was, and that demand for the product wasn't as high as you had hoped it would be. Tell me about that. Is that is that the right way to describe what happened, and what was your thinking at that time? Absolutely, the right way to describe it. You know, we we, we got some traction, but I think a lot of that traction was people not wanting to crush the dreams of a bunch of 19-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, people would say, oh, this is so interesting. You know, how can I help? And we, you know, we took that at first to mean, like, we must be doing something right. Yeah, uh, but, interesting but we, can mean a lot of things. <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. So, but we pretty quickly learned, you know, once it came time to like, well, you know, can we do a pilot? Can we do some sort of development? Like, will you buy this? Right. There was always some reason why probably that wasn't actually going to happen. And mm-hmm. so, you know, after a few months of this, we we started to understand that something had to change, that, that our, our initial hypothesis wasn't, wasn't panning out. And uh, this is where, you know, another situation where someone was, was very generous with time and helped us out. Paul Grana, who uh, had formerly been at, at Tygo Energy, was willing to have a lunch with me, you know, just out of a, a cold outreach. And that was kind of one of our competitors, to the extent that you could really say we were a competitor to them, since we were just, you know, <laughs> few people had no idea what we were doing. And we were kind of asking him, like, hey, you know, why, you know, what's going on? We were kind of telling him about, you know, why it seemed like we were not getting traction. And, you know, he was able to tell us that, you know, the, the problem that we were trying to tackle, which was this optimization at the panel level, was sometimes inflated. And it wasn't as big a problem as it, it might seem on the outside. 
and that you know, many of the other companies that were in this space were really selling on a different value proposition, which was not that we'll boost the output of your system by a couple of percent. It was really that we will save installation time and money by making longer strings of solar panels that require uh, less balance of system components. So fewer wire runs, fewer combiner boxes, fuses, all of that. And so that was a, a revelation to us that, you know, oh my gosh, like what we thought the value of our product was is not the value of our product. And we really went back to the drawing board saying, if that's the only thing people really care about, you know, is there a totally different architecture of this system that would just solve that problem in an even cheaper and simpler way? And so that was really, you know, kind of the turning point for Dragonfly. Got it. And so you built, you you ended up pivoting, making it a huge pivot from a tech standpoint, built that into the business that Dragonfly Systems became, where there was value, so much so that in 2014, the solar giant SunPower bought Dragonfly Systems. You sold the company to SunPower. You were 20 or 21 years old at the time. I know the amount is undisclosed. Uh, I know you told me it wasn't a big acquisition, not like Bay Area house money, but still meaningful for you, given where you were in your life. Why did you decide to sell? And then what did you learn from starting and selling Dragonfly Systems? Yeah, for why we decided to sell, obviously that's always going to be a tough decision for for a startup. And it really came from a few things. First of all, there was a pretty clear fork in the road where we were either going to have to work with some of the very large Chinese module manufacturers as as a customer, or we were going to work with someone like SunPower, a vertically integrated uh, U.S. manufacturer. And it was pretty clear that the companies like SunPower or First Solar, who we were also talking to at the time, that they didn't want to buy a product that was going to be, you know, really at the heart of their solar systems that came from, you know, a few 20 year olds who, you know, made this in their garage, like literally were making these things in their (laughs) garage. And like, you know, now I I kind of see how hilarious it was that that that, that was like part of our plan. Like why why would you ever risk a huge portion of your business on a component that that looks like that? There's no supply chain, there's no reliability, you know, it's none (laughs) of that. And at the time you're like, what's the problem? (laughs) Yeah, what's the problem? Like, we made it, it works. It. We showed you the data, you know. <laughs> so so that was, that was a big um, split. But the, but the other thing that was really important was why we had started the company. And, and the reason we had started the company was because we wanted to do something helpful for the solar industry. We wanted to get a technology out there that would make things cheaper, that would make things better. And we were so technology focused and it was so clear that the technology would have a larger chance of success with an acquisition, you know, with the resources of someone like SunPower ver- versus on our own, that was a pretty clear decision for us. But what was notably absent was the idea of, hey, we really want to build a world-class organization that has a great team and a great culture and all of this. That was all kind of secondary and was happening by accident to what really we were thinking about was like, how do we just push a useful technology into the marketplace? I'm sure we'll come back to that in the context of Ventura. But for now, <laughs> after Dragonfly Systems was acquired, you worked at SunPower as an engineer for a couple of years. One of those years was, was part-time when you when you did go back to Stanford. Why did you go back other than the pressure from your parents? <laughs> and what was it like being back? Yeah, the, the pressure definitely uh, escalated over time. Uh, <laughs> but but the, uh, the, you know, the, the real reason that I went back was because, one, I'd had an amazing time there the first time around. And so I knew it was a great environment and something that I loved to do. And I was getting to the point that I, I started to feel like I was plateauing on the amount that I was learning while in the, in the SunPower environment. And I had the chance to learn from some wonderful mentors, advisors, you know, within that organization. For example, your very first guest, Dick Swanson, has been uh, an inspiration uh, for me, but also someone who advised uh, me and our company at Dragonfly Systems and also at Antora. But it was also, you know, getting to the point that it was it was work. It was it was less about you know building something totally new and more about the execution of something that you know was in progress. And so it was a, it was a natural time for me to to step back and uh, a decision that I think was absolutely the right one for me. Coming up, Andrew dives back into entrepreneurship, but tries to figure out what could go wrong before making any big moves. What It Takes is brought to you by BakerBots, the global law firm trusted by clean energy and climate tech leaders. At the top of the show, you heard from Mike Didrikson. He's a partner at BakerBots who's been working on M&A and project development in energy for 20 years. Being a transactional guy, I enjoy putting things together that I can actually see. I like the physical aspect of it. And so we've had the 
fortune to be involved in a number of deals in the space that are interesting and help push the envelope on that. Mike is executing on large wind, solar, and battery deals, but he's also working on the next generation of clean energy projects. And so I'm thinking of things like the hydrogen space, carbon capture, again, big complex projects that BakerBots has a lot of experience with. These deals require deep legal expertise, but they also require a passion for knowing every part of a project inside and out. I mean, I've done things like I've read the maintenance manual on wind turbines just because I I want to understand how they work. And it's relevant to what I do, but it's not directly relevant. It's just the legal work. I could do the legal contract without understanding that, but I find that stuff interesting. It also allows you to connect with the people that you're working with. And I I spent a lot of time working with non-lawyers, a lot of engineers and commercial folks, and it, it establishes a connection that is important to me, and I, and I think that they appreciate. BakerBots knows energy, they know technology, and they know the needs of entrepreneurs pushing the boundaries of both. To scale your clean energy business faster, reach out to lawyers like Mike. Visit BakerBots.com. So you finished up your degree in 2017, and I know you were constantly exploring new opportunities in climate tech throughout the entirety of your time at Stanford, but kept coming back to energy storage. And how did you decide on storage? And then how did you specifically decide to pursue thermal storage? The focus on energy storage really came from what I'd seen at SunPower, which was that solar costs were just declining so rapidly. And if you just followed that curve down, it it was pretty clear it was going to be the cheapest form of energy available. And, you know, because of all the other wonderful benefits that solar has and, and wind has as well, It was clear that if you had a consistent source of energy rather than a variable source of energy from solar and wind, that that would be the right foundation for the future of energy. It was it was something that could displace fossil fuels. So there was really just one piece missing and it felt like everything else was there to make the kind of broad change in the energy system that we needed. And the the problem with energy storage was if you added enough energy storage to convert variable wind and solar into something that was reliable, you know, 24-7, 365, you know, around the year, all of the cost benefits that solar had were kind of immediately evaporating. It went from, you know, the cheapest or soon to be the cheapest form of energy to something that was much more expensive than fossil fuel electricity or fossil fuel heat. And so it was really clear that if you could solve that one problem, you would make a huge impact in the ability to convert the world from fossil fuels to renewables. I know you were in a class where a, a fellow, what it takes, former guest Matteo Jaramillo, the founder of Form Energy, was a guest speaker in that class. And he, my understanding, has said something to you that kind of rocked your world. Uh, what was that? Absolutely. Yeah. So so Matteo came and, and spoke at Stanford and Uh, was talking about energy storage. And of course, I was listening very intently because this is what I knew I wanted to to be working on. And actually, at the time, I'd had the hypothesis that lithium-ion batteries were, you know, they were already starting to follow that same curve as solar. They were getting cheaper and cheaper. And so it was a pretty easy thing to do to just say, hey, they're just going to keep riding down that curve and solve all of our energy storage problems. And so the way to, you know, make an impact in energy storage was really about how to apply lithium-ion to different problems, how to find the business models and the structures and all of that to, to do that. And it wasn't about needing a new technology. And you know what I learned from, from Matteo in, in that conversation, uh, I, I spoke to him uh, after his presentation, was that he did not believe that. And, and this, as you said, rocked my world because he had just stepped down from the head of Tesla Energy which was, you know, one of the biggest players in lithium-ion batteries. And so I fully expected him to say, yep, just like you've been thinking, we're going to take over the world with <laughs> lithium-ion batteries. And so the fact that someone with that amount of credibility was up there saying, like, it's not going to happen, there's something else that's needed, really kind of sent me back to, to reevaluate those assumptions. It was actually pretty quick after that that I saw that that, that was exactly right, that that especially for longer durations, the cost of lithium ion was nowhere close, multiple orders of magnitude too high. And even with kind of the most optimistic assumptions, which I definitely believed in and still believe in for lithium ion battery cost dropping, that it still wasn't going to make it 
for all of the different types of energy storage that we need. And so mm-hmm. that's when myself and, and Justin, my co-founder, who I'd been starting to work with at that time, really started to explore all the different other types of energy storage to find, you know, if there does need to be a new technology solution to this problem, you know, what is it going to be? What, what is the right technology to pursue? And what did you and Justin do? Like, your world gets rocked by Mateo and his comments— you realize that there's a bigger world beyond lithium-ion batteries. What do you do with that? We started doing techno-economics. Uh, it's something that both of us absolutely love. And, and, it, and it can start simple. You know, these are not some super fancy techno-economic models. It's just, you know, making spreadsheets and going through all of the information we could find. It's really helpful to be at a place like Stanford where you can often find experts that you wouldn't have access to otherwise to go through, hey, what's the latest in electrolyzers? What's the latest in compressed air? What's the latest in all of these other different areas? So so we built models for for each of the technologies that we saw as having the potential to get to those costs, which are insanely cheap, that, that you need to fully solve the energy storage problem to turn renewables into a suitable replacement for fossil fuels across the board. And, uh, you know, through that process, we found that there were many of them that we said, hey, like, that has a chance. There were some of them that we said, that has no chance. And What has no chance? <laughs> I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to say anything bad about about other technologies. I would say there are a number of concepts out there based on uh, gravitational energy storage that don't have the energy. And that was something that was pretty quickly clear to us in those techno-economics. Hmm. What does have a chance? Uh, fortunately, a lot of things have a chance. Um, <laughs> so definitely there are different types of electrochemical cells based on uh, different metals, you know, zinc batteries, iron-based batteries. There are a number of approaches involving hydrogen that a lot of people are talking about, you know, that some of the folks even that, you know, I came across in my days at Dragonfly, like uh, Rafi Garbadian from First Solar is, is working on now with electric hydrogen. So th- there are a number of different ways you could go about it. And so we wanted to find, you know, whatever one was was most attractive from the fundamentals, from the way we could see it, and that also had the least amount of work going into it, because we wanted to make sure that whatever we did was additive. Mm. And, you know, if, if we thought like, hey, you know, there's already going to be 10 teams working on this promising path, that's going to get played out whether we join that fight or not. Mm-hmm. Whereas there were definitely some, including the one that we eventually ended up with, that we thought, you know, either there aren't enough people working on it or the people that are working on it are working on it in a way that we think is not the right way to do it and, and that we have something to add to that field. And so the one that kept coming up on top was thermal energy storage. It was a clear winner in terms of cost of materials, energy density, efficiency. Um, is that is that all correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. So so thermal has incredible potential. You know, as soon as you start diving into a simple techno-economic model of, of thermal energy storage, you see that it, it has a potential to be incredibly cheap, has the potential to have very high energy density, better than, than lithium-ion batteries. And so there, were, there was a lot going for it. Uh, the question uh, that you have to ask then is like, why isn't that what what people are doing? And you know what what we really saw were a few problems. One was that people were really focused on low temperature thermal energy storage stuff like, uh, well, what to us is low temperature. Any any of the temperatures I'm about to mention are very <laughs> hot. You know, do not touch. And you know, what, when we talk about high temperature, we're talking about when things are glowing. But anyway, the, the lower temperature energy storage really was built out as part of the concentrating solar power industry. So CSP did a lot of work on thermal energy storage. And in that case, you were pretty inherently limited to low temperatures because you have a trade-off when you're concentrating sunlight. It, it becomes really expensive to concentrate sunlight to the many thousands of times that would be needed to get really high temperatures, like 1500 C or above. And so almost all thermal energy storage uh, that has been done in the past was at sort of the 500 C or, or lower temperature range. And so right off the bat, that looked to us like an opportunity because the amount of energy you store in a material is proportional to how much uh, of a temperature swing you take that material through when you charge it and discharge it. And so if you're not able to go above 500 C, that means you only have a few hundred degrees C of of temperature swing to work with. So you're inherently limiting the amount of energy you store in your system. Whereas, you know, we looked at some materials, including the one we eventually settled on, which is graphite, and, you know, saw, hey, these things can go up to 2000 C. You can suddenly look at energy densities that are four or five, you know, or even 10 times higher than conventional thermal energy storage. 
And, you know, just like I think what's happened in solar and batteries, you pretty quickly see that energy density is important because the balance of plant costs for all of these systems are bigger than you expect when you're starting out. And so it's really important to say, hey, if we built this same system and we double the energy density, then you're effectively reducing the cost of that system in half. And so we saw that as a huge potential in higher temperature materials like graphite. The other two things that I'll mention uh, really quickly that, that, that were our hypotheses for why we could add something to this field. One was there was a huge focus on liquids and convective heat transfer. And so, you know, pumping something like salt or molten metals or gases or, or things like this within the system. And it's a really easy way uh, to, to think about moving heat, but it's also one that comes with a whole slew of, you know, complexity and operations and maintenance costs that are really easy to underestimate. Um, so the pipes, pumps, valves, you know, corrosion, you know, leaks, all of these things, you take a system that should be really simple. You just like get something hot and you turn it into a very complex mechanical engineering challenge, something that looks more like a power plant than like a battery. And so we wanted to make sure that what we were doing looked more like a battery than, than a power plant. And the final thing was uh, the power plant aspect. You know, if you want to convert this energy that you've stored back into electricity, which you do a lot of the time, rather than just get it out in the form of heat, then you need some sort of heat engine to, to convert the heat into electricity. And this was another thing that had really limited uh, CSP in the past and thermal storage in general was there aren't that many options, especially at the kind of you know few megawatts or even tens of megawatts scale. You can use steam turbines. They're, they're very maintenance intensive. They're, they're very expensive. They're not very efficient, especially at those, at those small scales. Um, and so we knew we needed something better than that if we were going to make thermal energy storage a success. And the temperature is important because for the processes that Antora's tech will be used for, you know, as it relates to cement and steel and ag, that temperature, the 1500 CM above, that's, that's just required for those processes. Absolutely. You know, there are definitely applications for lower temperature heat uh, that are out there. There's a lot of low temperature heat needed in industry, but there's also a lot of high temperature heat needed in things like steel and cement. And so it was also a really important part of it that we could create a solution that would address things across industry rather than just in one sector uh, of industry. Mm -hmm. And especially those sectors of the industry that are hardest to decarbonize. Absolutely. So you, you've teamed up with Justin, you've decided on the tech, and then you, interestingly, but maybe not surprisingly, based on your experience with Dragonfly, you went on this month-long blitz to actually disprove your own business concept. I don't know how many founders do that. I think everyone should, in part because one of the lessons you said you learned at Dragonfly is that you didn't do your own market research to determine, you know, how how big is the market and are we getting our information from our competitors that are selling into that market who want it to be big, or is that just independent third-party research? So what did you find in that month-long blitz, um, and how, how big is the market? What you just said is so important, and, and a really big lesson for me coming out of Dragonfly was you have to do your own research, you have to do your own work on the techno-economics, you have to talk to customers, and you can't rely on any of the other proxies, like who's getting money or who's getting press or anything like that to figure out where the market is. And so, yeah, that, that was something that we really focused on at the beginning of Antora. And we wanted to make sure that it's very easy to believe uh, your own arguments. It's easy to drink your own Kool-Aid when you have an idea that's really exciting and it's new and you feel like it's good. And so kind of taking that step back, you know, having a really sober look at like, are we convincing ourselves of something that we want to be true? Or are we really throwing everything we can to disprove it and finding that it persists nonetheless? Mm. And, and that was really the focus of that month-long blitz. And, you know, we did come out of that finding a huge number of problems with our original idea that, that we knew we had to solve, but also feeling, you know, like it had weathered a barrage of attacks that could have disproved it. And, and each time it came out, maybe not unscathed, but with the, the core <laughs> hypothesis still standing. So then you and Justin received a grant from Stanford's Tomcat Center, led by our friend Brian Bartholomews, and you went through the Activate program, led by friend of the pod, Elon Gurr, where you met your third co-founder, David Bierman, and you workshopped the concept that would eventually become Entora Energy. How did you, Justin, and then David decide to work together, especially when it sounds like David was working on something that was initially competitive? 
Yeah, this is one of my my favorite moments in Antora's story. I think it really was something that helped set the culture for what Antora was going to become in the future. So actually, Brian Bartholomew, who was instrumental in getting Antora off the ground, was the one who put us in touch, myself and, and Justin, in touch with David. And there was absolutely a point where we could have thought of ourselves as competitors. So I, I sat down to coffee, although I, I don't drink coffee. So I guess it was hot chocolate for me. <laughs> David reminds me of this from time to time. So I had hot chocolate and I think he had coffee and talked about what we were doing. And you could imagine like, you know, the dance right at the beginning of that conversation, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're what do you we got? could be a what little cagey. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Trying to kind of size up what's going on. And in that conversation, you could sort of sense the change when we both just made the decision, like, we have more to gain from just sharing what we know than trying to be cagey and and being worried about helping out a potential competitor. And so, you know, the walls came down. We started talking really openly about all of that. We had a a great time. And, you know, we we definitely didn't decide at that time that we were going to work together, but we started collaborating more openly. We started having a lot of conversations And it was during those later conversations that it became clear that we have a lot more to gain from working together than than we have to lose. And I think it really speaks also to David's uh, character that that he was willing to to you know make that leap from something that he had already started you know a year ago. And you know he could have easily said like, hey, like I just want to go go my own way. I don't I don't want to merge forces here. That was how we uh, got together with David, and absolutely was uh, kind of the foundation of of how we we get along together. Got it. And then Antora's early funding, in addition to the initial support from Tomcat and Activate, came from a $3 million grant from RPE's DAYS program, or the Duration Addition to Electricity Storage program. (laughs) I know you all poured your heart and soul into that application. Tell me a little bit about that initial funding. Yeah, RPE deserves a ton of credit for getting Antora off the ground because we had nothing. I mean, we, we uh, we had just been accepted into the Activate program. There was four of us, myself, Justin, David, and, and Turin, our first employee. And, you know, we had we had no experiments. We had no credibility. We had no outside investors, backers, other than, than Activate in the Tomcat Center. And so, you know, any kind of reasonable person would have looked at an application from us and just said, like, no, I'll go with the application from GE or, you know, some other established startup that, that has, you know, marquee investors that I'm not going to look stupid for having funded this because, <laughs> you know, other people have said this is good too. So we knew that we were going to be kind of coming at it from that disadvantage. And so we just went all out on that application. We spent weeks pouring over every detail, making sure our argument was just really solid for for what we were going to do, why why it was possible and why RPE was the right person to, to fund it. And, you know, I don't know what the conversations looked like within RPE. I imagine there was a lot of disbelief and there must have been champions inside, somebody who said, you know what, let's take a risk on this crazy thing. And I'm forever grateful to whoever was was championing that within RPE because I really think that's what RPE is meant to be, is to take something that is promising, that's objectively an interesting thing to try, but that doesn't have any other options or any other existing support, and then getting it off the ground. And that was absolutely what happened for us. I hope whoever that person is, or people were, hear this. (laughs) So if anyone has connections, let's make that happen. (laughs) All right, so... I want to transition to building Antora. So you and your co-founders have proven the market opportunity, found your founding team, got some initial capital. What did you do next? Yeah, the next step we did was a little unusual, which is we didn't start with any experiments. You know, there are so many things from a technology perspective that were still unproven. Storing energy in graphite at super high temperatures was not something that had been done Uh, at least not done intentionally. It turns out there are lots of industrial processes that accidentally store huge amounts of energy in graphite at these temperatures, but it wasn't their intention to become an energy storage system. And then on on the flip side, one of the things that's really unique about our system is the ability to turn that heat back into electricity with modified photovoltaic cells that look similar to solar cells, but that can be very efficient at converting heat into electricity rather than sunlight. So any reasonable person might say, well, okay, you, now you have a little bit of funding, you have all this, like go do some experiments and, and prove out that that technology works. But we, we didn't jump right into that. And we continued to do something kind of similar to that month-long blitz of, of trying to disprove it, but really going through the techno-economics of the system, understanding the market opportunities, and just making sure we knew what the right targets were. You know, we wanted to make sure that if the technology progress went the way that we wanted it to, 
that it would turn into a commercial success. And that way we could focus down on what those targets were and, and have a lot of confidence knowing we were driving in the right direction rather than you know doing a fun technology project and then finding at the end of it that we'd wasted a few years and, and a lot of money chasing the wrong things. Another lesson learned from Dragonfly Systems that Absolutely. the tech alone is not enough. Absolutely. In terms of the tech, so Entora will deliver heat or electricity or both to big industrial customers, so automakers, food and ag plants. Tell me more about the tech itself. I know you've described it like a toaster, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but yeah, go into a little bit more detail there. Yeah, yeah. It it is a a giant carbon toaster. So the the way we charge the system is we take electricity uh, from wind and solar, either locally or or from the grid, and we, we run it through carbon. And the carbon just acts as a resistor. And so when you run electricity through it, it gets really, really hot, just like the coils in your toaster, hot to the point that they're glowing. That's storing energy because you're, you're heating up all of the atoms within those carbon blocks to, to very high temperatures. The next step is uh, storing the energy, which uh, is pretty simple. You, you make sure that you have an insulated steel shell around the whole thing. I mean, heat will leak out, but you try to minimize the amount of heat leaking out to, let's say, 1% per day or something like that. So it's, it's only trickling out a little bit. And then the third aspect is discharging. And that's one of the areas that's really unique about the Antora system. So we discharge out of our thermal energy storage system with light rather than with convective heat transfer. So this was kind of a key, you know, technology. This was a key part of the technology. Breakthrough, for, you can say breakthrough. No, I, I, I feel uncomfortable about that. I'll say <laughs> it for you. <laughs> the key breakthrough. Yeah, w- was, um, was that, yeah, so a key part of that technology was that we didn't use convection and we used radiation because radiation is the most powerful mechanism for heat transfer at very high temperatures. Radiative heat transfer is proportional to temperature to the fourth power, uh, which means if you double the temperature of an object, you will get 16 times as much radiative heat transfer off of it. And so that is a really powerful effect. Uh, That means once you're at high temperatures, which was something we previously talked about, you can do with carbon and when you're not kind of limited by the mindset of concentrated solar power, which was where thermal energy storage was before. So once you get to those temperatures, you have this new powerful mechanism of heat transfer, and it allows you to eliminate a huge amount of the complexity in conventional thermal energy storage systems. And so the way you can think about this is essentially that you carve a, a channel or a slot in your big storage block. And that acts as a sort of light pipe. So it's just empty space, but it allows light coming off of this glowing hot carbon to be channeled toward the edge of the system. And once it's at the edge of the system, then you have some options for what to do with it. The first thing you need at the edge there is some sort of shutter or throttle type mechanism that will open and close to vary the amount of light coming out of the system. So when you don't want energy, you need to keep the whole thing closed up so the heat doesn't leak out where you don't want it. Um, but when you do want the energy out, you sort of open this door to a you know blast of, of blinding white light coming out of this hot carbon furnace. And you can take that light and do one of two things with it. One is you can use that light to generate industrial heat. So you can use it to generate steam or to directly drive a high temperature process like calcination. The other thing you can do with it is shine it on photovoltaic cells and take advantage of the fact that you're already using light as a heat transfer mechanism and you have in photovoltaics something that converts light into electricity that's already been developed over the last uh, few decades. and Known as thermal Thermophotovoltaics. That's right. Thermophotovoltaics. So rather than solar photovoltaics, thermophotovoltaics, TPV. And the TPV is a really unique uh, part of the system because it allows you to sidestep the need to essentially build a thermal power plant next to your thermal energy storage. You don't need to go and build a you know, entire steam turbine generator system with all the complexity and, and maintenance that that involves. And instead, you have a very... Uh, modular, a solid state device that can convert in one direct step that light uh, into electricity. And this is something that Antora has developed a, a new photovoltaic cell architecture that allows us to make that conversion process happen with very high efficiency. And the core of that is using only the photons that you want. So coming out of this system are all types of photons, high energy photons, low energy photons. The high energy ones are the good ones, the ones that you can convert into electrons with a photovoltaic. All the low energy ones are not so useful. And that would usually be a loss mechanism in the system. So with our photovoltaic cells, we have a very good reflector that selectively reflects back all of those low energy photons 
Uh, and so basically recycles the energy that would have otherwise been lost. And mm. so that allows you to use a photovoltaic cell. You're probably familiar that, you know, usually a photovoltaic cell might be 20% efficient and instead get 40% or more efficiency, which we've already demonstrated. And in the future, we think over 50% efficiency. Mm. And so this is a heat engine that is more efficient than a steam turbine, cheaper than a steam turbine, has very little operations and maintenance costs, unlike other heat engines and can be scaled from you know watts or kilowatts all the way up to megawatts or gigawatts with the same technology just scaling by number rather than by making a totally different system. So this is sort of the, the, the value of, of TPV, and it may sound familiar because that's the exact same thing that has allowed PV to take off as a power generation technology. All of those same you know, modularity and maintenance aspects are what has made PV into you know, the cheapest form of energy in uh, most places around the globe. Mm, well said. And in terms of what Antor is selling to your customers, is it it's, it's the heat and or the electricity? And is the business model that you're actually selling the commodity uh, you know, on a per megawatt hour basis or? Yeah, we've, we've definitely been following what the customer has said they want uh, in, in this case. You know, we didn't come with a, a pre-existing notion of what the business model had to be. Uh, but one thing that we've really seen for a lot of these industrial customers is that they're looking for something that is pretty simple from their end. So they're looking for how can you do a, a heat purchase agreement or a power purchase agreement for the facility rather than getting involved in, you know, building technology, you know, buying it, maintaining it, all of that. And, you know, a, a way to think about it is, you know, a lot of these companies are used to signing a natural gas contract with a natural gas company to provide the fuel that they use to turn into heat at their site. And so they're really used to the idea that, you know, they go to one place, they get that fuel, it, it comes every hour of the year, and then, and then they're done. And that's what we want to provide the same sort of service that people are saying, hey, I, I need a lot of energy for my big chemical plant or auto plant, and I just want to sign a contract and have that be done and in a, in a zero carbon way for the next couple decades. Excellent. Got it. So in terms of the company today, you started Antora about four years ago in 2018. And earlier this year, you raised a 50 million Series A led by our friends at Breakthrough Energy Ventures and Lower Carbon Capital. When you reflect on fundraising, what have you learned so far? And what advice would you give to other founders who are raising or soon to be raising an A? The first thing I'd say is that fundraising is hard and it takes uh, a lot of luck. It takes being in the right place at the right time. And so certainly to, to anyone out there fundraising, you're going to hear a lot of no's and that doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong necessarily. And even if you only ever hear no's and your company fails, it doesn't mean that you are necessarily a bad entrepreneur either, because it may have just been the wrong timing or some other aspect of luck that did it. You know, we were really fortunate to not just raise money, but to raise money from some of the best investors in the world and, and those that we really set out to raise from because we were so excited about what those investors could, could bring to the company. One thing that I certainly learned during that fundraising process uh, was the importance of knowing what you want. And this is something that I also learned from Tim Latimer, who was a, another Activate fellow and someone who's given me a lot of advice over the years. And, and he really advised me to focus on investors that already believe in the type of thing that you're trying to do. And so don't waste your time taking investors that are not on board with, with the market, not on board with what the general uh, vision of the company is and try to convince them, that's going to be too hard. You need to find people that are already aligned with the vision and that you just need to convince that you're the right people to do it. And that was really, really important for us. And, and not just saved us a lot of time, but I think, you know, may have been the difference between succeeding or failing in a fundraising process like that. Because any fundraising process, you have to be focusing your, your time and effort on the highest probability uh, of success. And those are the people that are already aligned with you. Great advice from Tim uh, of Fervo Energy, who we've also had on the show and have also been really privileged to follow his career and journey. Um, so in terms of Antora's first pilot sites, you are breaking ground on those this month, which is really exciting. Can you say anything about where those first few pilots will be or what types of customers they're serving? And if not, when will we get those details? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to talk about the, the pilot that we're building our first pilot site is near Fresno, California, with a really close uh, partner and, and future customer of ours, Wellhead Electric. Uh, Wellhead is an independent power producer in California that is known for doing a lot of new and innovative things in energy. So we're breaking ground, as you mentioned, on a five megawatt hour uh, pilot system. 
And that's something that we're hoping to complete around the end of this year. And this is really the first time that we've made something at this scale. So, you know, we do have laboratory prototypes that are, you know, about 10 times smaller than this. And so this is a really important proof point for the company to see, you know, what does it look like, not just going up in that scale, but actually doing it at a customer site rather than in our lab. So it's something I think, you know, I'm really excited about. I know that the whole team is really excited about, and we just can't wait to see it sort of, you know, rise up out of the ground and start glowing inside. <laughs> Love that. Um, I know Antara is also partnering with a major solar developer to help facilitate the build out of on-site renewables for some of Antara's units. What will you be able to achieve as a result of this partnership? And are there any details on timing? Yeah, we'll, we'll be announcing uh, pretty soon a, a partnership with a, a large solar developer that is really thinking in an innovative way about the future of solar and not just how to put solar onto the grid, but how to put solar into other processes like industrial heat, which is what Antora would be doing in this partnership. So this is a, a really exciting kind of turning point for solar, I think, because you know right now solar has been very driven by interconnection, very driven by transmission constraints, and those things are getting harder and harder. And, you know, those are some important headwinds for the industry. But, you know, there's a whole world of other uses for solar energy that you can do when you have something like a thermal energy storage system that can smooth that out and convert it into, you know, low temperature heat, high temperature heat uh, for industry. So this is a partnership that I'm really excited about. I, I think, you know, there are a number of folks out there doing incredible work thinking about, you know, what the future of solar is. And all of that is important for us and important for anyone else doing energy storage that the solar industry continue to improve, drive costs down and get into more areas. Well said. Um, how many people on the Antara team today? We are now 30 people. Nice. And that's doubled in the last six months. Is that right? That's right. We went from about 15 to 30 uh, since the A. Nice. What have you learned about hiring since you've started to build the team, but maybe especially in the last six months? Hiring is hard. And I think if you're doing it right, it should be the hardest thing that an organization is doing when it's growing. And so it's something we, you know, we take really seriously. Um, you know, there's a million of uh, sound bites that people can say about hiring. You know, it's really important to hire fast. It's really important to hire right with good standards. It's really important to hire for diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's really important to hire, you know, for the needs of the company right now. It's important to hire for the needs of the company a year or two from now. So, and, and all of those are true to various extents. I, I don't think that I can say anything useful about how to do all of them at, at the same time. I think the way that we've uh, thought about it is because you're trying to balance too many things at once, you know, what are the things that you can fix later and what are the things you can't fix later? And so for us, we really believe that culture and diversity are two of the things that once you're going down a bad path, if you're wrecking the culture, if you have a homogenous, you know, group of people, it's very hard to come back from that. And so it's not that the other ones are not important, but we sort of focus on those first among equals of all of these important things to be thinking about because the other ones can be corrected over time. And, and we really believe that those ones cannot. Mm, really, really well said and great data to, to back up the sentiment that you have around once your initial team is in place, it gets harder and harder every round that you raise it's easy for that homogeneity to continue unless there's really dedicated intent early. Um, so happy to hear that you're thinking about it in that way. And that leads me to a follow-up question that we ask every guest on what it takes, which is, you know, based on who you are, in this case, as a white man leading a company in an industry that is overly represented by white men, you know, how do you think about that? How does that play out in Antora and the decisions you all make? Yeah, and if, if you don't mind me adding a, a, a white man with a privileged socioeconomic background and with a wonderful supportive family and uh, pretty much every resource that you could imagine as far as, you know, a wonderful network here in Silicon Valley and, you know, a great school, you know, Stanford that has a great network there as well. There's a lot of advantages that I, I've been given, and that's something I'm, I'm really conscious of. And I think, you know, a couple of things that I really think about related to that, th the first is Continuing to think about that helps me stay grounded because, you know, it's really easy to, you know, if things are going well, start thinking, well, it's going well because of me. And it's really important to know that, like, you know, it's going well, sure, maybe because of you, but also because of all of these wonderful things that are that are pushing you in that right direction. And, you know, I think the other thing that, that comes with that, you know, is a sense of not wanting to squander those advantages. And I know that there are 
so many other entrepreneurs who could probably be doing a better job than me at, at, at what I'm doing right now had they been given everything that, that I've been given. And that's just something that pushes me to continue to, to try and do better uh, every day. You know, I think uh, on the uh, sort of more specific side, you know, we were just talking about diversity and hiring. It's something that uh, I know that is going to, that it's very important that I be conscious of uh, and that our co-founders, my, my co-founders and I really think a lot about is that, you know, if uh, the top of the company is not very diverse, you have to put extra effort into diversity in the rest of the leadership team, into the entire company. And uh, so that's something that uh, we're, we're always thinking about. And we have a long way to go uh, in, in making those things the way we, we want them to be. Um, but it's also something that, you know, I, I know and I, I feel so confident uh, because I have conversations with them all the time about how, how my co-founders feel about this. And I'm, I'm also pretty proud of how we have been able to grow from 15 to 30, just this most recent doubling in a way that, that did improve our diversity. But again, so much more that we, we need to be doing. What lesson has taken the longest to learn? That's a, yeah, that's a tough one. I think it's been interesting to see that people actually care about climate now. And I say that just like, you know, having been in this space for roughly a decade, you know, it used to be almost a, a dirty word to talk about, you know, climate or the environment impact, environmental impacts of what you're doing. And now it's not. And, and so sometimes I feel like I've had to relearn over and over again that going into a conversation with a customer, you don't need to hide the fact that we're helping them go to zero carbon. You don't have to hide that and say, no, no, we're only here to talk about the dollars and cents of how we deliver competitive energy to you. That people do want to hear that. And that is such a wonderful change uh, for the world. And it's something that I'm happy to, to be relearning time and time again uh, how much people are, are caring more and more. Hmm, agreed. How has your leadership style changed, if it has changed, since you started Antora four years ago? Definitely, I, I hope it has changed because everyone has, has things to improve, uh, myself definitely included. Well, first, uh, I've learned a lot from my colleagues, you know, all the folks on the Antora team. You know, we have a pretty open culture of, of giving feedback, and I have just cherished all the times that people have told me, like, hey, what you're doing there isn't working. That's not helpful. That's not motivating, you know, whatever it is. And I, I really love to, to try and take that and, and, and change uh, based on it. You know, I think another thing that's changed about the way I, I approach leadership has to do with finding a team of people that really like to do different things. You know, I think early on, you know, there were some, some things that I didn't like to do and that I sort of assumed that that meant other people wouldn't like to do them as well. And so I would be very afraid to kind of push those tasks off onto others, thinking like, well, I, th that just makes me feel bad to, to, to make them do that. But if you, if you have the right people, like, you don't make that assumption. Ask them what they like to do. And sometimes they love to do it. Mm -hmm. And instead, you know, you're just being sad and doing a bad job of something that, <laughs> you know, you're, you're not good at when someone else could have been taking that and, and hitting it out of the park. And that's something that I feel like I've been learning slowly and, and continue to learn over time. Excellent advice. Last question before we move into our high voltage round is what will the future of thermal energy storage look like a decade from now? And what role will Antora play? Maybe not surprisingly, I fundamentally believe that thermal energy storage will be a huge part of the solution for decarbonizing industry. I, I definitely am, am optimistic and, and hope that Antor is part of that, but I believe that this is the way that it is inevitable that somebody will be de decarbonizing industry using thermal energy storage. It is, you know, the most cost-effective and efficient way to convert variable renewables into the type of energy that industry needs. And so what I really hope for the future is that Antora will be a huge part of decarbonizing industry and that when you go to an industrial site, it would not surprise you at all to see a big steel box with an Antora logo on it, knowing that that is converting zero carbon electricity into all the energy needs uh, for that site. All right. You ready for the high voltage round? Absolutely. Excellent. You know the first question, which is, Andrew, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? <laughs> great, great question. Uh, I've heard some wonderful answers from other uh, what it takes guests. I would have to go with an ant because ants can basically do nothing on their own, but they can do a lot in a group. Oh, I love that. You're our first ant. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Great answer. Also, some incredible multiple on what they can carry relative to their body weight. That's true. That does not apply to me, but, but the other <laughs> stuff does. <laughs> uh, what inspires you? 
definitely the team at Antora. There's so many people that have taken big risks with their careers, joining a startup from, you know, other types of jobs. And, you know, people are really doing it for the right reasons. They want to be part of a solution to climate change. And, and, and let me extend that, actually, not just the folks at Antora, but the folks at, at all of the climate tech companies. You know, there's just thousands and thousands of people who have taken real risks to do what they believe in. And, and that's the sort of thing that gives me a lot of optimism uh, mm. for the future. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? There are a lot of things that, that I enjoy. I, I know that I would want to work on climate change if I were forced to be not working on Antora. You know, one of the things that I've I've always been very interested in is gardening and and plants and and agriculture. So I would have to say maybe something uh, relating to our food system and how to improve that. It's obviously a huge part of climate change and uh, something uh, very different from what I'm doing right now. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Definitely. Justin and David, my co-founders, and the rest of the Antora team, they've been incredible along this journey. And I, I really, it sounds cheesy, but like I look forward every day to, to seeing the whole team and, and that gives me a ton of energy. And actually, maybe I'll, I'll just add into that. The other guests on this podcast, a few of them have already come up, but you know, scrolling through the list, probably like a third of the people that have spoken here before have directly helped me or directly helped Antora over the past few years. And I think it's, it speaks to how interconnected and generous this community is. Really, really well said. Tell me about a specific time that you've failed. One of the most important times that I think I failed was during and or really after the acquisition of Dragonfly by SunPower. That was a tough transition going from, you know, being the CEO of a very small company to being, you know, a engineering manager in part of a much larger company. And you know, I was really afraid at, you know, 21 of seeming like this arrogant upstart, you know, who didn't know their place uh, within the organization. And so I really gravitated toward kind of like holding back mm -hmm. and just thinking, you know, I just need to take the advice and direction from those who are above me in the organization. And I never had that practice balancing, you know, fighting for what I believe in and, you know, taking seriously the uh, advice of others. And actually, my uh, manager at the time, Zach Judkins, someone who I also owe a lot of gratitude to, had to sit me down and sort of uh, shake me out of it and say, like, look, you know, just because this isn't Dragonfly anymore doesn't mean we don't want to hear what you have to say. We don't want you to lead the team, you know, and, and fight for what you believe in. And that was really important for me to hear. It was a really important lesson. And I think even though I'm not in that position as part of a larger organization at the moment, it's something that I learned a lot of lessons from. And there's carryover to all sorts of things, including, you know, working with a board, for instance, you know, and making sure to balance, you know, taking advice, but also saying, you know, here's what I believe and here's what I think we should do. What is the best investment you've ever made? Probably working pretty hard in high school to get to Stanford. It was something mm -hmm. I knew I really wanted to do and that, yeah, took, took a lot of effort and, and that I feel like just gave me, you know, four years of, of wonderful experiences. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? I used to believe that startups really needed to worry about competitors, um, needed to worry about other startups, needed to worry about big companies, you know, taking their ideas, stuff like this. I, I think now I, I, I don't believe that. Yeah, I think that if you're focusing on your customers and what your customers need, you know, if, if your customers love your product and they love your team, it doesn't matter who else is out there. You know, you've created a good business relationship and, and that's what you need to focus on. I think you've told me too, if somebody can really replicate your business after telling them about it for half an hour, then you're doing something wrong. Absolutely. Yeah, you are never going to win that fight if you can give away all your secrets in a conversation. So right. you might as well try and, and you'll just learn earlier than you otherwise would that you weren't mm -hmm. going to win. Yeah. <laughs> when are you your best self? I'm my best self when getting to work with the team, especially on kind of looking farther into the future. You know, what should Antora be? What are the types of technologies that, that need to be in the market to solve a real problem? And I just, I absolutely love brainstorming, sitting at a whiteboard and, and just kind of going through concepts. Mm -hmm. What is your worst trait? I am extremely grumpy when I'm tired and people have told me this and I often feel like I'm not grumpy, but they have to tell me, no, you definitely are grumpy. I can relate. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Uh, at a carbon price. If there was just one or maybe two people who were going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? My grandparents uh, who mm. taught me a ton about the world and I love them very much. 
Hmm. Do I remember correctly, a physicist and a nurse? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. When was the last time you were scared? I'm optimistic, but I'm also scared all the time that collectively we're not moving fast enough on on climate change. You know, more recently, perhaps I'm I'm scared about the economic situation and how that's going to affect, you know, the climate transition and, you know, all of the things that need to happen there. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... They build something nobody wants. If you really knew me, you would know... I absolutely love gardening. Success is... Stopping climate change. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have... Spent more time showing appreciation for all of the people that have helped me along the way. It's really easy in the moment to you know give that appreciation, but I could always go back later when I know more of the story of how their impact really helped me and tell them. Hmm. Well, I think you've done a great job of that on this show, so let's make sure they all hear it. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be... Decarbonizing industry. I'm most proud of the team at Antora and the culture that we're building. Last question to build a successful startup. What it takes is a group of amazing people that care about the same mission. Andrew, this has been so fantastic. I have been a fan of yours ever since I first met you almost a decade ago, and I love following your path and your career, and I just believe so deeply in you and what you're doing. So thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. This was incredibly fun. Yeah, this was really, really wonderful. I, I'm I'm really honored because I have listened to so many of these and the quality of the individuals that have come before on this podcast are, are so high and I, I really am am honored to to be here. Oh, well, you're right there with them. So yeah, yeah I'm happy you're here too. And it's yeah. fun too to yeah, think about like Dick Swanson, who was our very first guest, and then Mateo and and Tim and you know, this whole progression of the people who've built the industry and those like you that are now taking it to the next level. Uh, that's what the show is all about. Andrew Ponick is the CEO and co-founder of Antora Energy. Join us for news stories each month of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I want to thank our exclusive What It Takes sponsor, BakerBots. To scale your clean energy business faster, reach out to their global team of lawyers. Visit BakerBots.com. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse with support from Postscript Media. Powerhouse works with global corporations to help them find and engage with startups that have the tech that they need to succeed. Powerhouse Ventures backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund, that's powerhouse.fund, and follow us on Twitter at Join Powerhouse, and you can follow me at Emily Kirsch. If you enjoyed the show, I would love it if you gave us a rating or a review at Apple or Spotify. We read every review and we really enjoy receiving them. Or send this episode to a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy it. For all of you podcast and party people listening, Powerhouse is hosting our annual summer party, New Dawn, on Thursday, September 15th in Oakland. Powerhouse is bringing together hundreds of entrepreneurs, corporate leaders, and investors for the best climate tech party of the year, and you are invited to join us. You can learn more at newdawn2022.splashthat.com or follow the link in the show notes. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. Dalvin Abawaji, Ann Bailey, and Sam Wolforth helped produce this episode. Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfrank are our engineers. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. 